we ready? Y'all please agree with me tonight in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much as we come in Jesus' name and through his blood. We thank you for an open heaven, hear your glory. Lord, I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be spoken under a mighty anointing of the glory. I thank you, Father, by the Holy Spirit brooding upon, just moving upon every one of us that's going to be listening to this. And the Holy Spirit just hovers over places. You just feel the Holy Spirit moving here tonight. And Lord, I thank you, Father, by the Holy Spirit, just move upon all of us that are going to be listening or watching this. And help us to get locked in and focused to give you our best here, our full attention, our focus, that we'll have eyes and ears of the Spirit. And Lord, I thank you as you speak through me. This will be as living seeds of truth that's sown into good soil that's prepared by the Holy Spirit and then watered by the Holy Spirit. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And Lord, I thank you by the Holy Spirit. The winds of the Spirit will carry this out everywhere it needs to go, and it'll accomplish everything it needs to do. For your word does not return void, but accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And we agree together tonight that the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we submit this time unto you. We resist the devil. He must flee. We bind anything in the name of Jesus right now that would try to hinder distract, resist, or in any way keep this from getting where it's supposed to get. We command it to be bound right now in Jesus' name and back off. And Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing all that out of the way, that everything will just flow with ease tonight. And help us, Lord, And we just get so focused. We're not distracted. We're going to get everything out of this that we need to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we get into this tonight... um, if everybody just look this way, give me your best ear, your focus tonight, I appreciate it. Um, as we dive into this, the Bible talks about in the last days, I know I'm not saying this in a critical way, but a lot of people in the generation that's coming up, and there's always exceptions, I'm not stereotyping, but there, there seems to be less of that deep, entrenched Bible study that people are really serious about. Um, in the current generation right now than there has been in previous generations. And a lot of people have not really studied certain things out. And one of the teachings would be obviously in the book of Revelation. But I'm going somewhere with this as I open up. So as we see like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said, and he foresaw the latter days, and he said, I see that one day there's going to be this gross darkness. He used the word gross, but... That can mean like a real deep, thick, black darkness that's going to come upon the world. But he said the glory will be upon God's people. And we're starting to see that. And as you look at the book of Revelation, you see that progressively, you know, there's going to be a catching away or pazzo of the remnant bride, and, and then there's going to be martyrdom. But gradually, the world well, there'll be an increase. It's already happening right now, but there's gradually going to be an increase of things like witchcraft and the occult, uh, Satan worship. And believe it or not, a lot of people have never studied this out, and it's, when they don't, they think something like this sounds all radical. But eventually, in the book of Revelation, it says the whole entire world will worship the Antichrist. They'll worship his image, which is an idol that he makes. And it says that they will worship the dragon, which is obviously like the god of the Antichrist, which is Lucifer. So it says eventually it will get to that place where the whole world will do that. And so we're already starting to see in our generation 
here in America, there's been such an increase, uh, things that are really dark and satanic that's, that's coming. And what's happening is, is that there's an increase of that thick darkness. And because of that, there's a, an increase of warfare. But tonight, as I deal with a certain subject here about paranormal, I'm going to show you from the Bible how do we actually walk in victory during these times. See, there is, a call, before the catching away of the remnant bride, we're here, we're here to occupy, we're here to uh, see great exploits. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, you know, there would be difficult times, but he saw that there would also be people that knew God would arise and do great exploits, okay? So we're called to be here, but we're called to be here in these latter days and to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to see revival, to see a harvest come in. But to do that with this thick darkness in the earth that's arising and increasing, it's burgeoning. This is not going away. This is something that's increasing. Um, I'm going to give you tonight something that I believe can really shift things in an awesome way. So let's look at it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to follow along in the notes, starting with verse 14, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise people. You then judge what I say is the cup of blessing which, which we bless, not a sharing in the blood of Christ, and the bread which we break, not a sharing in his body. So obviously he's talking about the Lord's Supper here. Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, but we all partake of one loaf. He said, look at the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, not partakers in the altar. So I kind of have to paint a picture here because a lot of people in our culture absolutely will not understand the fullness of what he's trying to say here at all. So if you just bear with me for a moment, okay? So pagan temples, different nations, the pagan nations throughout the centuries would have these temples, okay? And just to bear with me, some of this is, you know, but anyway, these temples where these gods were worshipped. They're gods. And these temples were a place, kind of like a charged location where there's like a satanic anointing on it. It's kind of charged and people would come there, and they would usually be some type of an idol, whether it was actually on the temple itself or in front of it or in it, but some kind of an image that was created to represent that God. And people would come, and they would bring maybe a, kind of a counterfeit to first fruits. They would bring some of their, their offering of food. They would also bring different animals with them, and the the priests of that pagan temple would come out and would kill the animal, and it was a sacrifice to that demon god. And then, of course, it was given as a worship, and the meat a lot of times ended up being sold in the marketplace, and that's where that whole controversy came from there. But also, there would be what would be called in some places temple prostitutes, and this could be heterosexual or homosexual. But let's say, for example, kind of give you an idea of the, the pagan satanic mindset of people. Let's say that they were wanting their children, but they couldn't. And so let's, the husband would think, well, okay, I'll go here. And he goes to the temple and he pays. And he's able to have 
sexual relations with a temple prostitute there. Now, the mindset was in this charged location that it was almost like that temple prostitute represented the God there, and it's like a sexual union that supposedly would create some kind of fertility within him, and then he would go back, and when him and his wife came together, they're more likely to conceive. But all of this is satanic pagan practices of pagan temples. And so when people were getting saved that were among the Gentile nations, the Apostle Paul told the church in Ephesus, he said, look, you better learn what pleases the Lord. Because Paul understood he grew up, you know, Jewish, and he grew up understanding there's one God, and he understood the culture, the Hebrew culture, what pleased God and what didn't. But he also understood as he was going outside of the nation of Israel to Asia Mitre and, and wherever else he went, and he was preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, he knew that all they knew was these temple practices. This is what they grew up doing their whole life, what was normal to them. And he was telling them, listen, you better be careful that you learn what pleases God and what to, you need to quit doing these things. Now, let me, with that in mind, let me read this again. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's saying, stay away from these pagan temples and these idols. I speak to you as wise people. You then judge what I say. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless, not a sharing in the blood of Christ. Do we really realize how much that's true? Think about it. We're sharing in the blood of Christ. And then he said, it's not the bread which we break, not a sharing in the body of Christ. See, what represents the Lord's body and blood is going down into our body and blood, getting in our bloodstream. It's in our bodies. I and mean, this is a very powerful thing. And then he says in verse 17, since there is one loaf, we are uh, many, but we are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. In other words, it unifies us all together at this table. Look at the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, not partakers in the altar. Now, as a, I mentioned Satan's counterfeit at these temples. So now let me give you what God gave the nation of Israel. He said, you will come to the tabernacle. You will go to that location. You're not going to do this in your backyard. You're going to go to the place that I tell you. You're going to go to the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh for many years. And so the people would come, and they, they would bring their first fruits, and they would also bring animals with them as offerings. And they would go before the priesthood, the sons of Aaron, who would sacrifice. They would kill these animals, and it was a worship to God. And if you brought, for example, certain offerings like a peace offering, which a lot of people did, even though they brought their sin offering, they could also bring a burnt offering and a peace offering all at the same time. And so the peace offering... The priest would have them put their hands on the offerings, and the sin would go on the animal and be sacrificed. And then, as the peace offering was cooked, they would stand there with the priest, and they would eat of the sacrifice together with the priest. So the family could participate. It was a way of drawing near God. It was a way of connecting to this altar there that they were eating of the altar. Is this making sense? And he's saying here, are not they sharers? in the altar, okay? And then he said, are those who eat the sacrifices not partakers in the altar? What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but look at this. But I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. You understand that? 
When they went to these temples and they sacrificed to these idols, they were not sacrificing to just some stone. They were sacrificing to a mighty principality that is being worshipped through the stone. So by them eating of that sacrifice, they were becoming sharers in that fallen angel, so to speak. They were sharers in that temple. And he's saying that those things sacrificed are to demons, not to God. And he said this, I do not want you to become partakers with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons. So he's trying to tell them because somebody must have been doing this. He was telling them, Corinthian church, you better hear me. You may have grown up your whole life doing that, but you better not come to God's house and take communion and then go out next week to a pagan temple and eat of the sacrifice. He goes on to say right here, he said, you can't do that. Um, Partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, so is this making a little bit more sense? So down through history, I'm going to give some things tonight. I'm going to bring it all together in the end here. But I want you to see the book of Hebrews says that we have an altar that we can eat of that even the sons of Aaron have no right to it. You know what that is? That's the communion table. It's the only way you have a right to that is through Jesus. So let me explain a little bit about blood covenant. I cannot spend long. There's things that I could rabbit trail, but it would make the sermon too long and I'd lose people. But in ancient cultures in the Middle East, a covenant was very common. And so we don't really understand covenant in America. The closest thing that we have would be what's called signing a contract, where you come into some type of an agreement and you sign your name on something and you come into a contract, but that really is nothing like a covenant. So let me just explain the ancient covenant. So if two parties were going to come in covenant together and there was two different men representing two different families and they were going to come in covenant with one another, maybe they moved close together geographically in proximity and they wanted to have a covenant relationship with one another because when you came in covenant, that meant that my enemies are your enemies and your enemies are mine. So if anybody ever attacks my family, we're in a covenant, we're in blood covenant, that means you strap on your sword your entire house and come rescue us, and vice versa. So people wanted to have these covenant relationships if they could, and if it was a good idea between those parties to do so. And so what they would do is they would take an animal, and basically the idea was, may this this be done to us if we break the covenant. They would kill the animal, and a lot of times cut the animal in half, and the blood of the animal was there, and they would walk through the bloody soil, maybe like a figure eight, and they would exchange some things, uh, some things that were important to them, uh, something, maybe an insignia, something that was important to them, they would give to the other person and vice versa, and they were people that bore witness, and they took oaths together, they made pledges, Things like this, may your enemies be my enemies now, and my enemies yours. We're in a covenant together, and if we break this covenant, may what's happened to this animal be done to us. That's the type of thing, okay? And this was for the rest of their life. And they all understood this. 
It was cutting a covenant. All right, and you can see this in the Bible many times, but you can see this where David and Jonathan came into a covenant of sorts, that they exchanged things between the two of them, okay? You can see this in the life of Abraham, and I love this, because God himself initiated this covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham to take those animals and to cut them in half, and Abraham goes out there and he takes animals and cuts them in half, and I believe if I remember right, there was three large animals and then two birds. So there was four on each side and he split them. And Abraham walked on that bloody soil. And that day, God cut covenant with Abraham. And what's neat about that is, is that there was actually a flaming torch from God that floated on top of that blood through that bloody soil. There was a flaming torch that went through there. You know what that is? That represents the glory of God. And one day, that flaming torch was going to show up in a, in a burning bush to Moses. And one day that flaming torch was going to show up over the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and the children of Israel would gaze at the fire by night. And isn't it interesting, and I'll talk more about this, that the glory, that flaming torch hovered above the blood. Are y'all hearing me? Where the blood is reverenced, that's where the glory comes. See, I, I don't have time here too long, but I'm going to give you a couple quick things about this because I want you to understand this. We're living in the last days, and I'm trying to give all of us some things here, some principles that I believe will be of great significance and great value in these last days. And one is to come up under the blood. Now, David understood that because as he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which what, what does that represent? The glory. It's the throne of God. It's a, it's a representation of the throne where the glory dwells, okay? When David was bringing the ark out from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, what did they do? Every so many steps, they killed an animal. So think about this. The ark, the glory, once again, was going over blood all the way into Jerusalem. David knew there was a connection between the blood and the glory. And just like Abraham, that torch went over the blood in the same way the Ark of the Covenant was carried over blood into Jerusalem. And you can see that because also um, the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur would go in, he had to burn that incense in there, but he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid, sprinkle it in between the cherubim. And there was nothing in there to give light but the glory. The glory would come over that blood. So again, where the blood's applied, the glory came on top of the blood, okay? And to understand this, God cut covenant with Abraham, and then all those years later, 400 years later, God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and you have to understand, this would have seemed to the Egyptians, and this would have seemed to the nation of Israel as very apocalyptic. It would have been scary. It would have been like, end of the world type of thing to these people, you know? I mean, think about what they went through. All those plagues, the thick darkness, all the, all the animals that died through, from the hail and all the locusts that came and just everything that happened, the, the water to blood. I mean, it would have seemed just, I mean, so massive what was going on. And God was just, just shaking that nation to the core. And it's a picture and type of salvation that 
Moses, a picture of Christ, so to speak. But he brought Israel out by their saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. They're brought through the waters of baptism of the Red Sea and through the baptism of the cloud, which speaks of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They're brought out into the wilderness, and there God appears to them on the mountain. The mountain's shaking, the blast of a shofar, the people are terrified. God comes down on that mountain, and Moses gathers the people unto him, <clears throat> has, them, has the, the different young men kill all these animals, 12 different altars to represent what? Hear me, the cutting of covenant. 12 different altars representing the 12 tribes. The young men gather the animals, kill the animals. <clears throat> the leaders would have come toward the front. Moses takes some of the blood, and he's sprinkling it like this over the leaders. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that's cut today between you and God as a nation. And God gave them Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Do you accept this? They said, yes. You see again. The cutting of covenant, and you see an exchange of vows, so to speak. If you will be my people, I will be your God. They came in blood covenant. Then, this is in the Bible. A lot of people don't know this, but it's in there. The, the children of Israel, the leadership, <clears throat> excuse me, went with Moses and Aaron up Mount Sinai, part way up. And they ate and drank, and the Bible says that they saw God and they ate and drank in his presence, and they lived. You know why? Because another aspect of covenant that I forgot to mention earlier is after the exchange of the vows, they would um, eat a meal together. Did everybody hear what I said? A lot of times the meal was a simple meal, bread, the fruit of the vine, but they would eat a meal together, and that meal had to do with sealing the covenant. And so once the covenant had been cut between God and the children of Israel, then they went up and they ate in the presence of God. And why were they able to come into God's presence as glory? Because they had little blood drops all over them. The blood gave them access. And so <clears throat> tonight, I want you to understand a little bit about altars. I, I think that here recently, I've given out some things for people to read, and I, I think people are starting to understand it more. But an altar is a place that's very similar to blood covenant, very similar, because it speaks of covenant, it speaks of the bloodshed, it speaks of worship. But a, an altar is a place where heaven and earth would come together. It's like, for example, that's basically when God called Abraham, he called him out from where he was, and he went to the land of Canaan, and Abraham built altars. That's basically what he did. He dug wells. You know, he, uh, obviously we know there was a calling on him to, to have Isaac and all of that and pass the blessing to him. But Abraham, as far as a spiritual calling, was one that people would come. I'm sure he was very hospitable. He talked about the one true God. But also, a great witness was that he built these altars. And let me give you one example. Whenever he went to build an altar to put Isaac on, we know this story. 
You know, among the Jewish people, it's called the Akedah. It's the story of Abraham binding Isaac, and he was going to kill Isaac, and God said, no, I just was testing you, and God gave him the ram in the thicket. And so Abraham kills the ram, place. but whenever he built that altar, it was revealed to Abraham the nature of God. And Abraham knew him that day as Jehovah Jireh in English. Yahweh Yireh, and it's the Hebrew word re'e, which means to see. And so the way that God was revealed to Abraham that way, to that day was this, as the God who sees and provides. Did everybody see that? And so that altar that Abraham built, then it could be inscribed on there, Yahweh Yireh, the God who sees and provides. And so people would come by and they would see this altar and they would know this was an altar to the one true God and then God's nature, at least some of his nature, being revealed in his name that people would read that inscription, the one who sees and provides, Yahweh Yireh. That was part of Abraham's calling. He was one that built these altars. And these altars were powerful. Because you read that even years after Abraham's death, that he had built an altar there by Bethel. And, and Jacob was, was leaving his home to kind of get away from Esau, and Isaac told him to go find a wife. And so Jacob is going back to Padam Aram to, to find a wife. And on his way, he lays down one night in Bethel. Bethel. He named it that, the house of God, because... That night, he was sleeping right around the area where his granddaddy had built an altar. And Jacob that night had a vision, a dream, where he saw that there was some kind of a ladder where angels were ascending and descending, and there was something there. There was a glory there. <clears throat> and it shook Jacob, and he realized, man, I didn't mean to, but I've stumbled upon the very house of God. And so he named that place Bethel, Beit House El of God the house of God. But see, why was God's glory there? Because Abraham had been there and built an altar. There was blood that was shed unto God. And because of that blood, God honored that covenant with Abraham. The blood and the glory came. It's an interesting principle. I'll talk more about this in, in future sermons. That there is like a residue where God has moved powerfully in times past. Many times you can still go to those places and feel the presence of God. And that's exactly what happened to Jacob. He stumbled to a place where God still, there was a residue where God dwelled. But my point is, is that these altars, God told through Moses in the, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, told them, when you build a house for me or whatever, don't make it real ornate. Don't plant all these fancy trees. And I don't want it to be about that. I want it to be about me. And he said, when you build these altars, he said, don't build them up with all fancy ornament and all that. Just stack up some rocks because I don't want it to be about that. I want it to be about the sacrifice and about me. How many knows that too many times we make it about all the wrong things? But from Adam to Christ, we see that there was a principle there about these altars. The altar was a place where blood was shed unto the living God, and it was a place of covenant 
where God's covenant people would come to worship the one true God. And because of the blood that was shed and the blood that was there, the glory would come to these altars. It was a place where heaven came to earth and there was like a connection between God and man. And of course, we know that all of this pointed to one day that there would be the ultimate altar where God himself would be wrapped in flesh and be taken up to a hill, a high place. And there, that would be the ultimate altar where his sacrifice once and for all, his blood was shed, his blood poured out, and it was obviously where heaven and earth came together. Is this making sense tonight? And so one more thing about altars, the power of altars. See, that's why these satanic altars, they have a power about them. And a lot of times that these sacrifices to demons, there's a power in that. And it, that place kind of becomes charged with some kind of a satanic anointing, like a power. And again, I'll talk more about this in the future, but it's like a portal can be created. And, and there there's, can be like a, a hellish oppressive, demonic thing there. And people, people don't even realize it, but sometimes discerning people will go into certain areas and they'll sense something dark. And previously, there were people that there was an altar to the enemy there. And so Gideon had to deal with the altar in his backyard. God calls Gideon, oh man of great valor, I want you to go win a battle for me. And Gideon, who me? And God said, here's what you're going to do, though. He said, I want you to go in your daddy's backyard where he's got an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole, and I want you to cut it down. <laughs> Gideon was scared. Isn't it just like, I mean, things never change. You go to kick over people's golden calf, and let me tell you, even among professing Christians, you start trying to kick over their little pet doctrines and traditions of men and the idols that they've made. And that's what happened. Gideon goes, he had to do it at night because he knew that the people would kill him. These are God's people, by the way. And he's going to destroy an altar to Baal and they would have attacked him and killed him for doing it. So Gideon's like, yes, sir, Lord, I will do that. But I'm going to do it in the middle of the night where nobody knows that I'm doing it. And so he goes in the middle of the night, and here's what God told him, because I want you to understand the power of what's going on. This will make more sense now. His father had offered up offerings to Baal, so this was an altar that's charged, that it's satanic, it's something to a fallen angel, it's an evil thing, right in his backyard. Many of us, just like Gideon, have had things in our family ancestry where there's satanic altars that we've got to deal with. Well, God taught Gideon how to deal with it. Gideon took a bull, and he kills this animal, but here's what he did. He destroyed the altar bell. He, he destroyed Asherah pole, put it there, and here's what he did. He built an altar to God on top of it. And as he killed the animal, the blood of that animal seeped down, and it basically was canceling that old altar out. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It's a picture and type of what we have in Christ, that there may be altars to other gods in our blood, 
They go back in our ancestry, but the greatest altar of all, Calvary, when we apply that, that blood of Jesus comes over and cancels the satanic altar out. Hello? Now, y'all don't shout me down or anything. So Gideon understood this. God taught him to deal with this satanic altar. And, I, and again, I'm not going to go rabbit on too much, but I want you to see this. So see, let's just pick on one tonight. I could talk about all kinds of, of pagan religions and things, but let, let's just for a moment talk about Freemasonry. So, you know, let's say that somebody's ancestry went to a Masonic lodge and they, they went there, and I know a lot about this because this was something in my ancestry as well, and so I had to pray about this. And so you have somebody that goes to the Freemasonic free Lodge, and they have to go through all these weird rituals. And let's say that this person professed to be a Christian and went to church, but the very first thing they do is knock on the door, it's all a ritual, and say, I'm in darkness needing to come into the light of Freemasonry. Well, excuse me, as a Christian, why would you ever say that? They don't realize that they're kind of, in a way, denying the Lord right there. Then they're hoodwinked, and they're cable-toed, and they brought in, and and, and they go through all these bizarre things, and not the least of which is this. They have to take off their wedding ring. They're putting Freemasonry above their own marriage. Hello? Long and short of it, after they go through all these weird ritualistic things, they're kneeling at an altar. Did you all hear what I just said? They're kneeling at an altar. And there, yes, there's a Bible open, but it's a Masonic Bible. And there'll be a square and compass, which many have seen on top of the Bible. And the hoodwink is ripped off. And they're, they're basically coming into the light of Freemasonry. But you know what? Even the symbolism there is that that square and compass on top of the Bible is saying that it's above the Bible. It's superior to the Bible and that you're to see the Bible through it. You see the symbolism here? They're kneeling at an altar that they really don't realize what they're doing, but by kneeling at this altar, they're basically giving themselves and their descendants to the gods of Freemasonry, which is, is Baal, but the god of Freemasonry is actually known to the Freemasons as Yah-Bul-On, which means Yah is supposed to be the God of the Bible, which he's not in Freemasonry, so that's just fake. But the bull part, B-U-L, which is fitting, bull, right? But Baal, that's supposed to be Baal. And then the on, O-N, is supposed to be Osiris. So there's this weird hodgepodge of all these different religious beliefs coming together. Freemasonry basically believes in ecumenical... Um, one world religion, it's like all roads lead to God, and you're, you're basically yoking yourself with all these different people. But see, when ancestors kneel at that altar, they're basically giving themselves over to the gods of Freemasonry, and they're coming in covenant, not only for them, but for their descendants. And so somebody, and it releases a curse in the family, and there's all kinds of problems. But whenever people come to know Jesus as their Savior, just like Gideon, now they can come in and they can take the cross, 
the blood of Jesus, and they can renounce all that Freemasonry in their blood. They can pray about it. You need to know how to pray these type of things. But the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice, can come on top of that altar to Freemasonry and cancel it out. And you can be released from any type of generational curse. There's freedom in Christ, and you can come into blessings, okay? All right. So altars are powerful. The Apostle Paul recognized that. He said you can't, you know, eat of the table of the Lord, then go eat at the table of demons. Now I'm going to give you a couple things because I want to bring this all together now, I've been teaching on this since probably the 90s, and just here recently, some literature I gave you guys, he talked about this. I see it a little bit different than him, but not much, a lot of similarities. But I want to show you the seven places Jesus shed his blood. Now, the, the number seven in the Bible um, has to do more, some people say completion, it's not really the best. It has to do with like fullness and perfection. The seven is like perfect fullness or complete perfection, okay? So Jesus in the Bible is revealed as the one who has seven eyes. How many knows he has full, perfect, complete vision, okay? The seven horns, that speaks of power. So let me give you some things here. First Peter 2.24, he himself brought our sins in his body on the cross that can read, bore in his body our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So there's seven places that are very significant because again, we're talking about just like Abraham, when he walked among the, the bloody soil and was God cut covenant with Abraham and David brought the ark in as they walked on bloody soil. Jesus himself was shedding his blood, and there was kind of a path to the cross. And I want you to see this. The very first place Jesus shed his blood was in the garden, and he shed his blood by sweating blood. So the very first place was sweating blood in the garden. Now, what you got to understand about that is this, the power of, of rebellion being broken. See, Adam and Eve were also in a garden, and they were tempted. Eve was tempted. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Satan came to Eve and said, look, you can be like God. And knowing good from evil, you can be like God. The pride of life right there. There's no doubt she was hungry, so you deal with the lust of the flesh. But then she saw that it was good for food, lust of the eyes. She was deceived and ate of it. She sinned. She missed the mark. But Adam knew what he was doing. He wasn't deceived. He transgressed. He rebelled. But basically in, the gar- in a garden, and this has to do with trees, Adam and Eve basically said, God, not your will, but mine be done, and they rebelled. Jesus, on the other hand, being the last Adam, having been tempted with the pride of life, 
Satan took him up and said, you know, throw yourself down. And he said, no, I'm not going to tempt the Lord like that. See, pride, presumption. And Satan even quoted the scriptures at him. Well, you know, the Bible says he'll send his angels to bear you up. But see, God didn't tell him to do that. If he had done that, it would have been out of presumption and pride. Satan was trying to trick him, even quoting the word. But Jesus wasn't going to fall into pride. And then Satan said to him, he brought him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all these if you bow down and worship me. What's that? The lust of the eyes. But Jesus said, it is written that you'll worship the Lord your God only. Just quoted the scripture. And of course, we know at the beginning, Satan said, if this stone is bread, or turn this stone to bread, you know, he knew he was hungry. And if Jesus had disobeyed the Father and broken fast prematurely, it would have been sin. And he was playing on this hungry. He was playing on the lust of the flesh. So Jesus was tempted in every way. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. But where the last Adam fell, this, I mean, the first Adam fell, the last Adam would overcome. So Jesus overcame all of this. He overcame the devil. Now he's in a garden. And the temptation to not go through what was about to happen. He knew Roman crucifixion. He knew how brutal it was going to be. And Jesus was wrestling there in that garden. And Jesus basically said, not my will, but your will be done. And he sweated blood and broke the power of rebellion right there. Then now we can rise up and be dead to sin and alive into righteousness. Amen? The second place Jesus shed his blood is the crown of thorns. We know that Adam... When he sinned, God told Adam, he said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to, the, you know, the earth will produce for you, to produce thorns and thistles. Poverty. Jesus took that crown of thorns on his brow. It was smashed down into his brow. He sweated on his brow, or he, he bled there, rather, bled on his brow. And that blood that he shed on his brow has broken the power of poverty. Jesus died naked. He died with nothing that we could be made rich in him. And so the power of poverty was broken so that prosperity could come. Number three, the third place Jesus shed his blood, and this was extremely brutal, was the cat of nine tails at the whipping post in his back. And Jesus endured it. You know, the passion of the Christ, that did it justice. People could see how brutal it really was. But Jesus had to endure, and they, they ripped open his back. They plowed his back open, and blood came out of his back, and it was payment for healing. We can understand a little bit more. Third John 2, I pray that you be in divine health and prosperity as your soul prospers. Health and prosperity, the crown of thorns, and the whipping post, right here. Number four, they ripped his beard out, and they beat him without mercy. Jesus, I mean, this was the, the fourth place, but in the Bible, the beard, you know, when they really wanted to shame this, I know some of you may remember this story. David had sent some people to represent him to another and to uh, mock those that were sent, they shaved half their beards off and cut their garments short. 
And so David told him to stay back until your beard grew. It was a shameful thing. And see, Jesus, I want you to understand something. A lot of people don't know this because this is something that even the passion of the Christ cannot really do. But Roman crucifixion was, was there was nudity. It was a shameful thing. Number one, you, you were seen as a criminal. People were mocking you. They, they ripped his beard out. They beat him. And he's nude. And he's, this is shameful. It's humiliating. And it seemed like defeat and failure. But yet, as Jesus hung on the cross and died, and he took all that shame and humiliation on that cross, all that rejection, and he raised from the dead, it was the ultimate victory. But Jesus paid for our shame and humiliation. And let me tell you, the devil does this, and he uses evil people to do this, but don't ever let the devil through people try to make you feel like your face just being rubbed in stuff. How many knows that there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, so the power of shame is broken. Number five, our hands. We need something in our hands. Jesus took nails in his hands. This was the fifth place that he shed his blood. And the Bible speaks of the works of your hands blessed. There is something about prosperity with the hands, but the Bible also says that we will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. There's power and authority in our hands. And you can see this even in praise and worship. There's something about the clapping of hands. There's power in that. There's something about the lifting of hands in worship to God. There's a power in it. You know, we can see this even when Moses lifted up his hands and the Red Sea parted. We can also see it where Aaron and Hur had to hold his hands up and Joshua and them were fighting the Amalekites. As long as his hands were up, there was victory. There's something in our hands. I don't think that we really understand the authority and the power in our hands to destroy the works of the devil and to release healing. Number six, and the number six always speaks of sinful man. The sixth place Jesus shed his blood was in his feet. And when God gave Adam dominion on the earth, he was basically like a king over the earth. Wherever he walked, he had authority. Now, don't you think about when Jesus, the last Adam, went to the Gadarenes. You remember when he got out of the boat, as soon as his foot touched the soil, what happened? The man in the tombs just, I mean, started manifesting demons. All it took was Jesus' foot touching the soil. There's authority in our walk. The Bible, God told Abraham to walk around throughout the land because I'm giving it to you. The blessing there that we read is everywhere the soles of your feet tread, I will give you. There's dominion. You see, there's something in that, and not only that, but in our praise. There's something in the dance. When God's moving in praise and people start dancing, there's something about freedom, and I mean just hell is fleeing from the place. It breaks things open, but there's something about the dance. And I believe it has to do with the authority that's in our feet. And then number seven, the last place Jesus shed his blood was after he died, and that was in his 
side his ribcage. We know his heart had burst. This was obviously a deep sorrow, great rejection that he felt. He also felt rejection from God because when the sin of the world came on him, like a dirty garment, it was, there was so much sin that the sky actually turned black. That's how much sin came on him, by the way. And when that happened, the father had to look away, and Jesus starts crying out, why have you forsaken me? Because he couldn't feel the father anymore. He felt rejected. He felt rejected by the people there. He felt rejected by the nation of Israel. He was really the rightful Messiah. He felt rejected because his disciples had all forsook him except John. And then here he was feeling even, even the father turn his back, not that the father turned his back on Jesus, but just on the sin. He felt the disconnect. Anyway, Jesus died of a broken heart. And as they put that spear through his side, the blood and water from that heart that had burst came out his side. So the last place, the seventh place Jesus shed his blood was from his heart, a broken heart. And the power of that, obviously, is inner healing. But I want to tell you, not only inner healing... But whenever you look, anybody that has a biblical background, you start talking about blood and water. The, one of the first things people are going to think of in the Old Testament was the blood of the outer court and the water of the labor. But in the natural, every time that there is a childbirth, there is the water that breaks, and through that child coming through the birth canal, there is blood and water. So Jesus was paying for us to become children of God. And not only that, the first Adam, when he needed a bride, God put him to sleep and took the bride out of his side, out of his rib, remember? The last Adam on the cross, as he also went to sleep in death, that blood and water that came out of his ribcage area was purchasing a bride without spot or blemish. As the book of Hebrews said, having our hearts sprinkled by the blood with a pure conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hello? I'm going somewhere with this. I'm just going to read over this. But as we deal with paranormal, how are we going to have victory in these last days with thick darkness increasing? Witchcraft, the occult satanic things on the rise, and thick darkness moving in. Well, we're going to have to understand who we are and what we have in Christ. So I'm going to deal with the nine curses and the seven blessings that were under the law. But let me just give you this. Deuteronomy 28 through 29 and Leviticus 26, if you read all of that, you can put it together. Derek Prince did an amazing job. You can break down, there's nine categories of curses and seven categories of blessings. But this is for you and I. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curses under the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham would come on us as Gentiles, and we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you have to understand, the, the book of Galatians helps us understand that those that are of faith, that we are actually the sons and daughters of Abraham. You understand that. 
And as Abraham walked through the bloody soil and God cut covenant and gave him an oath and put a blessing on him that you and I, as we take Holy Communion, you need to, in your mind's eye, understand that you're walking with Abraham through the bloody soil and the oath and blessings given to Abraham are on you right now. I'm going to give you a couple things. There's signs that maybe there's a curse at work in someone's life. And if you see these signs in your life or in your, especially in your family, you see a history of mental or physical breakdown, mental illness, physical chronic illnesses. There can be a sign also of repeated or chronic sickness, especially if it travels down the family line. Number three, barrenness or tendencies to miscarry. Number four, the breakdown of marriage or family alienation where you see a lot of divorce and strife and all that in families. The next one is continual financial stress, poverty, famine. It just seems like never getting ahead. Another one is accident prone, where people have repeated unexplained accidents. The very first time Derek Prince had it, you know, God speak to him about a curse, he became the premier one, to teach and understand about curses and breaking them. But the way it was introduced to him, there was a young lady that had broken her leg in the same place, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, like eight times or something. It was ridiculous. And God spoke to him, there's a curse there. And when he broke that curse, she physically jolted. You know, if you're dealing with, with curses and, and demons and things like that, you can't counsel the stuff away. You've got to rise up and use your authority and destroy the works of the devil and drive him out. Also, where you see a history of suicide or premature death in a family or living like a defeated, tormented life. These are signs of a curse. So when people move in disobedience, and that's what you see in family bloodlines, people get in disobedience. They get into idolatry. They get into the occult. They get into kneeling at altars to other gods. Or maybe they're in their family, there's all kinds of infidelity or sexual immorality or bloodshed, but they do things that are in direct disobedience to the Bible. And because of disobedience, they bring curses on their lives and on their family bloodline. And some of these curses travel down the family blood. But if you see these in your life or in your family, here's nine categories of curses. Again, you can read all of Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and Leviticus 26 to get an idea. But the first one is humiliation. Now, remember what I taught about where Jesus shed his blood. He's paid for humiliation, okay? Also, another one is barrenness and unfruitfulness. Another one is mental or physical breakdown. And I give all the scriptures here. Another one is family breakdown. That's the destruction of families, divorce, adultery, whatever, the destruction. And did you know in the Bible under that, did you know that there's a curse for illegitimacy? People that are conceived out of wedlock in Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26, and in today's society where the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that marriage is to be honored by all in the marriage bed undefiled. And you've got all these people now that think that they can just shack up and live together and have sex outside of marriage. God is against it. Not only that, but the Bible says that there is a curse that comes on illegitimacy. So people that are conceived out of wedlock, it's sad because this curse says here, 
that they won't be able to enter the assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation. I wonder how many people are being hindered from going to church and from accepting the Lord because of this. But the power of prayer. Let me tell you something. Pray them in. This is the power of intercessors. When people know how to pray and get a hold of God, God himself will push through any type of darkness. He will convict people. He'll draw them to him. And then when they come to Jesus, they can be set free from every curse. Also, a sign or a curse can be poverty and famine. Look at this. Number six, defeat. How many people are living defeated lives? Oppression. The oppression of the enemy. Failure in life. Disfavor. These are nine categories of curses. Nine in the Bible does speak of judgment. And then seven. There's seven categories for blessings for obedience. Number one, exaltation. That's the head, not the tail. Number two is health. Lord said, I'll bless your food and drink. I'll remove sickness out of your midst. He talks about, I'm the Lord your God who heals you. Also, number three, like reproductiveness or fruitfulness in every area of life, not just, you know, in bearing children, but just fruitfulness in life. Number four, prosperity. Number five, abundance. God wants us to have abundance so that we can be a blessing to other people. Number six, victory over our enemies. And number seven, favor. These are the seven categories that Derek Prince broke down as blessings for obedience. And let me tell you something. When Jesus died on that cross, the ultimate altar, okay, when we take that sacrifice, what he did, we can put that on top of any other altar that's ever been in our past or our family blood. And the blood of Jesus can cancel out every other altar. The power of what he did on the cross can break off your life every curse, anything the devil's ever had in your life, that there can be complete freedom. But we have to appropriate it by faith. We lay hold of the promises of God through faith. And then Derek Prince, I put this in here, but he wrote out a prayer of release from a curse. So if people feel that there's a curse, they could read this sincerely and it would bring deliverance. And he has a story where a lady, a Jewish lady who didn't even know the Lord that her, her boss and them had gotten mixed up with some weird lady that was new age who had put some kind of a blessing on them or whatever, and she was against it. But anyway, it was actually a curse. How many knows when the devil's servant so-called blessed something, it's actually a curse? Did y'all hear what I just said? Next thing I know, the next thing she knows, she starts developing rheumatoid arthritis in her fingers and her hands shrivel up and are crippled. She's supposed to be a secretary able to type, and now she can't do her job. And a friend of hers, and granted, this lady wasn't even a Christian. A friend of hers said, I think that you're dealing with a curse. And she's, she's thinking, well, that's a bunch of superstitious nonsense. Well, I, I, I say this respectfully, but why don't you read the Bible? You know, because the Bible doesn't talk about as being superstitious nonsense. But her friend is persistent to this lady and says, I think you're dealing with a curse. She said, you need to read this. I, I, or listen to this. I've got this teaching from this guy named Derek Prince. And she's, she never did listen to it, but she gave it to her written form and said, just read this. And so the lady takes this unbelieving, non-Christian lady 
who doesn't even think there's anything to it and says, I'm going to do this to get my friend off my back, reads it out loud. Did you know just by reading that her hands were set free from that curse and arthritis left and she was able to go back to her job? Isn't that something? An unbelieving lady was delivered from a curse. I shared all that tonight because I'm closing with this right here, the power of the blood. And here in a moment, we're going to take communion together, those of us here, in a special way. And I'm all, I'm all, we're going to get it together, so I'm going to have uh, you know, a recording of just this. But listen, in these last days that we're living, we have to understand, it would, it would be so important for you that you go back over these notes because as you go over this and you really understand what you have in Christ, that God Almighty has cut covenant with you, you understand that, you understand that through the cross we are made sons and daughters of God, that we've been purchased with a price, the blood of covenant. Remember me talking about how covenant was cut and your enemies become my enemies. God said that you are a people of blood covenant and therefore he will be an enemy to your enemy. You're a, a child of God when you understand that, that we can come with confidence before the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. We understand who we are. We understand that we're sons and daughters of Abraham and the blessings that were on him are on us. And we, we really believe that. And we, we take communion and we understand that this is our covenant meal, the communion table, that this is just like the children of Israel. They went up after they cut covenant, went up and ate and drank in God's presence we're eating and drinking the cup of the Lord, and it has power. The Apostle Paul said, you can't be flippant about this. You're sharing in the blood of Christ. You're actually sharing in his body. When we understand what we're, the power of what we're doing, that it's an altar. When we take communion, this is an altar where heaven and earth come together because that blood, and where the blood is reverenced, that's where the glory comes. And when we really understand what we're doing and we have faith in what we're doing, faith in the blood, faith in the cross, faith in the promises, and we speak them out loud, you understand that that's like painting the blood over the doorpost of your life and family, that death and, death and destruction may come next door, it may go across the street, and it may come over here to your left, but it's going to have to pass over you because of the blood. I'm trying to help people supernatural protection. And because the blood is referenced, what, what have I shown you throughout this? The glory comes. In Isaiah 4, the Bible says this, In those days I will purge the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of fire and a spirit of burning. I will cleanse it. God says, I'll clean house, I'll purify. And then the glory will be a defense. You know what's going to happen? Thick darkness is going to keep coming on the earth with increasing measure, but the glory is going to come upon God's people. And because of the glory, I believe this with all my heart, there's going to be supernatural protection, there's going to be supernatural provision, and supernatural health. That should not be there, but because we're reverencing the blood, the enemy's not able to trespass in our lives. Because we reverence the power of the communion table, and we're connected to God's altar, then the enemy has to stay back some. He can't come in and do just what he wants to do. And let me tell you something else. We're intercessors. We can bring our families under the blood. 
Even people, you say, well, I got wayward children. That doesn't mean you can't bring them under the blood. Remember the story of Rahab, and I love that Karen Wheaton brought that out. You remember how Rahab helped the spies, and she put that scarlet cord out the window? It represented the blood. It was, it was similar to the blood of the doorpost at Passover. It was the blood over the windowsill, so to speak. She put that scarlet cord. Everybody in her household were delivered and protected. You can bring your family under the blood. And let me tell you, when you do, the enemy has to back off. Remember Job. Job lived so far back. I mean, it's one of the oldest books in the Bible. Job lived back in the day whenever having his own altar was what you did. And he would shed the blood of animals on behalf of what him and his family. And because of the blood, y'all hear what I'm saying? It's in Job chapter 1. Because Job, who lived way before Jesus Christ came, because Job applied the blood to his family, Satan himself went before the throne of God and testified, I cannot touch him. I cannot touch his family. I cannot touch what he has because there is some kind of a hedge of protection about him. You know why that was there? Because Job brought his family under the blood. So I want you to understand what we're doing. And I want people to lay hold of this and somehow that God get faith in us that for ourselves we have the faith in this to, to bring our lives under the blood. And I believe this. I believe that healing and divine health starts happening more and more when we understand what I'm preaching on. Deliverance from the enemy. Breakthrough. I've even heard many stories experience things like this of just applying the blood even to land. You go to places and where things have been a certain way and you take communion together with believers and you pour the blood of Jesus, so to speak, and the fruit of the vine on that land. I'm telling you, there is awesome power in that. There is awesome power. There's literally, in these places, I'll talk more about it in the past, but there's places where it's like has kind of an open hell. It has like a portal that can be shut by the blood of Jesus. So, Lord, I thank you for this word tonight. I thank you for the power of the blood. I thank you, Lord, that you're wanting to cleanse bloodlines. You're wanting to cleanse altars that are not of you, out of our families, out of our lives. And, Lord, you want us to understand the power of the body and blood, the power of the communion table. And so, Lord, tonight is here in a few moments, we're going to shut down this recording. But as we do, we're going to take communion together. And, Lord, I just thank you for moving with great power in the communion table tonight in Jesus' get communion. We're good. All right. And we need to take a moment, those that are watching this, and this will be on video, it won't be on audio. But as we, oh, maybe we could do both. I don't know. But Lord, as, as we do this tonight, we thank you, Lord, for bringing to our minds anybody to forgive, any sin to confess. It's important now just to take time to make sure you've forgiven everybody. And you, you've repented of anything that's come to mind. The Bible says, examine yourself. And so those that are watching or listening, you can take time. You can pause that and, and do that. And then just unpause it to join us. But those of us here that we've already been doing that throughout the service. So, Lord, as we take communion tonight, we're going to do this in a special way. But, Lord, we choose right now to forgive anybody that's ever wronged or disappointed or hurt us in any way. We forgive them from our hearts 
Having forgiven them, we bless them. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us. If there's been anything in us, in pride or fears or rebellion or lust or idols or greed or, or bad attitudes of the heart, just anything that hasn't been right before you, we confess it, we repent, and I thank you, Lord, that we are washed in the blood of Jesus. Your faithful and just forgives us and it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, as we come tonight through the blood, just take our time with it for a few minutes, okay? Father, we come in Jesus' name and through his blood, not in our own righteousness, but through the blood. And, Lord, I thank you. We in your gates with thanksgiving courts of praise. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us, Lord. We all have a roof over our head and bills are paid. Lord, I thank you that we've had good food to eat and, and you've provided for us, Lord. We thank you for your protection, your provision that you've kept us and sustained us and brought us into this time. Lord, you alone are worthy of all the glory, the honor, the power, and the praise. Lord, we bless you. And the Bible says to hallow your name. And we take them up, we hallow your name, Lord. You are Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, the one who's brought us close. We once were far off, but through the blood now we've been brought near. And, Lord, you are faithful to your covenant people. And, Lord, you are Yahweh Zebot, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Yireh, the provider, the one who sees and provides. Mishpat, our judge. Lord, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne, Lord. Yahweh Rohi, our shepherd, Rafa, our healer. Shalom, our peace. Shama, a divine presence. Makadesh, you are our sanctification, Lord. We are justified, sanctified wholly unto you in the righteousness of God in Christ. Sealed off, and the enemy has no power over us. And you are Yahweh Tzikenu, our righteousness. You have made us the righteousness of God. And Yahweh Nisi, our banner. And Lord, we thank you. We hallow your name. We praise you. As we come through Jesus' name and his blood, we remember Jesus on the night you were betrayed. You are fulfilling the, 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 everything that was prophesied, the law and the prophets. Everything pointed to this time when the Messiah become the last Adam to be the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, of the world. And here you are, the night of Passover, Jesus, and you held up in the course of that Passover Seder the bread, the afikoman bread a bread that was broken and wrapped and buried away later to be resurrected in the meal, found by the children, all that has symbolism. But you took the bread and you blessed it. Blessed you, Lord of God, King of who gives us the bread from the earth. And Lord, I thank you that you have given your body for us. Your sinless body, just like the matzah here tonight without leaven, sinless body, pierced, striped, beaten for us, Lord the price that you paid. And Lord, then you held up the third cup in the Passover meal called the Goela, the cup of redemption. You held it up and blessed it. Lord, I thank you for the awesome power of your blood, Jesus. No man took your life. You willingly laid it down. As the ultimate blood covenant that would be cut between God and man, Jesus, you willingly laid down your life. As we take this tonight, everyone that sounded my voice with faith tonight, Father, we humbly come with great humility but with confidence, Lord, that we are sons and daughters of God. Lord, we are a people of blood covenants. We're able to come before the throne of God and receive help in time of need, but as we take communion, I thank you, Lord, as a people of blood covenant, that you're an enemy to our enemies and send your terror before us. 
Lord, that you're with us, as the Bible says, as a mighty, terrible one. Lord, we thank you that you're, you're, you're awesome, and we praise you, Lord, that, that the blood has brought us into this relationship. And also, like Abraham walking among the bloody soil, Lord, that you cut covenant with Abraham, and now the blessings given Abraham are on us. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. And as we take this tonight, Lord, the blood of our Passover lamb, Paul said to the Corinthian church, has been shed. And Lord, we bring us and our families and all that we own, all that we are, our entire spirit, souls, and bodies, our hearts and minds, our health, our finances, our relationships in life, the works of our hands, our employment, our vehicles and travels, our property. We bring children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. We bring everything under the blood right now tonight, and we serve notice that everything is under the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus the Messiah, and the enemy cannot steal, kill, destroy. He cannot bring death or destruction. He cannot do what he wants to do because we're under the blood. And Lord, I thank you in these last days that we're coming under supernatural protection of the blood. And because we reverence the body and blood, Lord, that the glory of God is going to be over us as a defense. And Lord, we bless you tonight. I want everybody just as you take this to picture that the body and the blood going into us, but going, the blood going over you and your family and all that you own, all that you are. Lord, we cancel out hell's assignments right now. The enemy cannot trespass. We break his power. We bind him. He will go from us and all that we own, all that we are, families, in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for the blood now. Let's worship the Lord this first time as we take it. Lord, I thank you tonight also. Lord, you said you would give us a table in the presence of our enemies. Anoint our heads with oil, the cup over, our cups overflow. And Lord, I thank you tonight that you became a curse for us. Curses even was hung on a tree. You redeemed us from all the curses under the law. Any type of failure and oppression and defeat and, and sickness and poverty and all these different things. All of that is a curse under the law. And you redeemed us from that. All that goes on you 2,000 years ago, the divine exchange, that now we receive the blessings given to Abraham on our lives. And Lord, we live and abide as the head, not the tail, healing and health, prosperity and abundance, favor, fruitfulness and life, victory. We live in those blessings given to Abraham. Our lives are blessed in every way. And so, Lord, right now, any place where the enemies had influence, in any area of our lives, spiritual warfare coming against health, coming against people mentally, emotionally, uh, spiritually, relationally, in any area, things generational. Father, we destroy that off and out of us. We command to be bound and leave us right now in Jesus' name. We break the power of it. It goes from us now. The enemy flees. He has no right or claim because of the blood. And so, Lord, I thank you tonight for us being totally delivered from the enemy's hand. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb out of the hand of every enemy and live under the blessings of God. In Jesus' name.
Every place the enemy's had influence, just bury this down. We believe that to be purged out of every area. Every gate of hell shut, every altar cleared. We are free in Christ, in Jesus' name. we thank you for your healing that you took it on your back Peter said by your stripes we were healed we thank you Lord that you send your word to heal us and watch over your word to perform it we thank you the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and gives life to our bodies I thank you Lord that you are the Lord our God who heals us you carried all sicknesses and diseases and sorrows upon yourself it was nailed to the cross. You're the one who forgives all of our iniquity, heals all of our diseases, crowns us loving kindness, tender mercy, satisfies our lives with good things, delivers us from the destroyer. And Lord, renews our youth as the eagle. I thank you, Lord, for great healing and health, spiritually, soulishly, like the mind, the emotions, physically, relationally. We receive your healing right now as we take this we thank you, Lord, for your healing in Jesus' mighty name in every area. so many different ways you can do this however the Lord leads you but I want us every place where there's been something that's been stubborn just a couple different things I want to do Lord every place right now where there's been stubborn health battles there's been stubborn financial battles things I want you to picture this with me stubborn health stubborn finances or stubborn relational things where the enemy has been stubborn. Lord, as we bury communion down into those places, we're believing you right now for that to begin to clear out, that everything of the enemy goes and heaven comes in. It goes from those battles that clear out into the victory and what Jesus paid for on the cross to come in. Lord, we thank you for it right now. Just bury that down in those places by faith in Jesus' name.
And the last one is this. By faith over your family, those that have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, those that, that need to get things right. Father, right now, in Jesus' name, into our families. We bury this communion right now. Those that are believing for children, we bury this down into the womb right now for there to be life come. You're believing for children right now. We bury this down into the womb. We're believing for life to come. And those that have children, some of them wayward, Father, we bury this down into their lives and we serve notice that we bind Satan right now that's coming against them. We bind the enemy in the name of Jesus, every spirit of rebellion. We bind you. We break your power. We command you to release them into the purposes of God. The Bible says God will bless a thousand generations of them that love him. And Satan will not have them. We curse you and bind you. You will release them now and go from them. And Lord, I thank you for your angels sent on behalf of your blood covenant people to go gather in the harvest of our lost loved ones right now. In Jesus' mighty name, and I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit brooding over them and convicting them and drawing them unto God. In Jesus' mighty name. But we're believing now for descendants, breakthrough. In Jesus' mighty name. Just worship the Lord as you take me. It be hard for us to imagine, but I believe that God lives outside of time. Somehow, we only see life like a parade that you're looking through one aspect as it goes back, as we live in linear time, but God lives outside of time, and he sees creation, he sees the end and all in between at one time, and I believe as we do something like this, somehow... We're connecting with God's blood covenant people throughout the generations. As you do this, I believe that somehow you're walking with Abraham through that bloody soil. I believe somehow you're sitting with Moses at the Passover table. Let me say that again. Somehow you're sitting with Moses at the Passover table. Somehow you're sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. Somehow you're sitting at the foot of the cross. And down through the ages, those of blood covenant that celebrated communion with a sincere heart, somehow we're taking this with the greater body of Christ. I know that sounds crazy, but I believe that there's something to it. There's a power in this. We're eating of an altar that the sons of Aaron have no right to. We're eating of God's altar, heavenly altar. This is almost like the manna. Jesus said his body was like the manna that came from heaven. There's something about this that's very heavenly, the bread of presence. And it makes me think about Israel eating and drinking in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. But Lord, I just thank you for this. Let this be sealed tonight in every life. And Lord, as people that have taken this with us, Lord, I just speak a blessing over every one of you. 
that you will truly come into exaltation and promotion, to be the head, not the tail, top and not the bottom, that you'll have the power to gain wealth and durable riches. I bless you to truly know healing and health in every area of life, that you will truly know prosperity and abundance so that you can be a blessing to many others, that favor will be around you like a shield influencing all that you come in contact with, and that you'll have supernatural victory over every enemy that may come at you in one direction, but be smitten before you and flee in seven. The blessing of the Lord is upon your food and drink as God removes sickness out of your midst. None will be barren or miscarrying in your land, but rather the number of your days of being full on the earth. I bless you. You will go to the grave full of years and full of vigor as she's gathered in season. So when you're lying and rising, going and coming, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. Lift up his counts upon you. Establish your life in his shown manifest presence. I bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Let this be sealed now. Amen. All right, just go ahead and shut down recordings.